yeah, that period was even to your point saying that you got slammed online about being a pimp. (laughs) I can remember my dad literally screaming at me on one call, like, you're going to be an online pimp. And I'm like, no, it's not, that's not it. It's more, it's more than this. Welcome to Try Babies, the podcast where we're not afraid to be seen trying and crying. You're joined by Sunroom co-founders Michelle Battersby, that's me, and Lucy Mort. That's me. We help build the world's largest dating apps, Bumble and Hinge. Now we're in the thick of building our own tech company and we're bringing you along for the wild ride. Each week you'll hear from us as we fill you in on the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to business, career, relationships and everything in between. We'll tackle burning audience questions and be joined by inspiring creators, female business leaders and the people who have motivated and energised us along the way. These won't be your typical shiny business stories. We want to showcase the experiences that go unsaid and definitely chat about the moments that don't make it onto Instagram. Prepare to hear about the lows, the failures, the doubt and the downright nightmare days. Navigating life through your 20s and 30s can be hard, which is why we're so passionate about creating a space for you to come to on the days you need to feel seen, inspired, educated, supported and sometimes shocked into action. This is honestly the podcast we both needed throughout our journeys. On today's episode, we run you through all the details around how Sunroom began and our greatest challenges in the first year. What started as one email in 2020 has turned into a 13-person team here in LA bringing this vision to life. Let's get into it. We're back. Lucy, you and I, round three. So last episode, we've now heard both of our individual stories And we cut them off basically at the moment where we came together. The best part. Yeah, the best part, where it was the perfect match. That's my little dating app app (laughs) joke, quite right. (laughs) Um, So I think it makes sense to actually read out the email that you sent me. So I've got it on my phone. So I received this October 2020 when I was in lockdown in Melbourne starting to come up with things that I I could be doing. But I guess we can we can get more into that in a little bit. But this is what landed in front of me. Hey Michelle, Morgan Sparks passed along your email. Great to meet you. Not sure how much he told you, but I led design at Hinge for four years. I left a year ago and have been consulting for a bunch of consumer social startups and exploring building something myself in the sex tech slash digital girlfriend space. Think OnlyFans, rebranded and with a supercharged product experience. I'm reaching out because I'd love to collaborate with someone from Bumble. I have a super talented woman engineer who's covering the technical piece. I have design and product covered, but I'm looking for a partner with brand marketing, growth slash business background. At Hinge, we always admired the Bumble brand, the various activations and campaigns you ran, which always blew our minds with Envy, which is why I'm particularly interested in joining forces with someone who's ex-Bumble or close to being ex-Bumble. I know you have an awesome new gig, congrats, but I'm wondering if you know of anyone I should speak with. If you have time, I'd love to chat over the phone and explain more. It would be awesome to connect with another Aussie who spent time in online dating. Let me know what you think. Cheers, Lucy. And I remember receiving this email at a time where the wheels were really starting to turn for me. I definitely accepted that I was looking for the next thing, but I didn't know what that was just yet. So in my mind, I'm like, hmm, yeah, I could introduce her to some people from Bumble, but I also could just pursue this, see see what more you have to say, meet you and see if it's something that actually I'm interested in. And I can remember getting on the call with you and what that was like. Can you remember it? I can. Yeah, very clearly. (laughs) Yeah. It actually reminds me a bit of my first call with Whitney where like I remember where I was sitting and everything going on in the environment at that time and certain things that you said. But I remember my first impression of you was you were so, so smart. Firstly, I was like, who the fuck is this woman? (laughs) And how is there an Australian that's done this? Like I was surprised maybe we hadn't crossed paths sooner, but I guess like those the space, Australia is so isolated. So you were in a cocoon. I was in my own little cocoon. But I remember just thinking, 
it almost like didn't really matter. Well, it did matter what the idea was, but I think I was just so impressed with you. And I just felt you really had your head screwed on and you were speaking in a way that felt really big. And I think that's what I was needing at that time was something that felt really big. So I think if there was anything that sparked my curiosity and attracted me to keep pursuing conversations with you, it was the feeling of bigness. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, I can read your response to that email and let people know where I was at. But hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for reaching out and apologies for my delay. Should have taken about maybe five days. Not not a huge delay. <laughs> Your career sounds incredible. Great work, Rehinge. Amazing product. I must admit, I'm very excited reading this. I've been considering my own options lately. Please keep that between us. And I have been stuck on the idea of starting a women-led tech incubator. Only issue is I know how to grow and market apps, but I don't know how to build them. Would love to hear more about your plans, question mark. It may not be the right time for me yet, but I would love to connect regardless. And I do have some great other people in mind too. Want to jump on a Zoom this week, Michelle. So from my perspective, I think I was like on some level hoping that you might be the person, but also like trying to stay realistic. And I I was living in Tulum at the time and was like really deeply exploring this space and like putting the the wheels in motion to to start it but like knew I couldn't do it by myself and had teamed up with an engineer who was like really interested in, in working on this with me and so I had I was seeking intros from people I was living in the house in Tulum with other people in my network people in on deck specifically looking for growth people marketers and so you were probably the best shot I had shot so far. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Admittedly. And maybe, you know, maybe this came from a place of like not yet like understanding my greatness or like what I could achieve. But I was like, oh, she wouldn't want to do this. Like she wouldn't want to like partner with me. She's got this amazing new thing. And yeah, I like live in another country. And I also knew this idea was kind of scary. Yeah. So like when I did that first call with you, what I was really trying to, I remember like like pitching you basically on my thinking. I had done a lot of reading. I had done a lot of like thinking about how to reposition this market and, and the product that we might build so that it could be more palatable because it's mm. like OnlyFans is a really taboo product. And especially back in like three years ago, 2020, yeah, I think it was like pretty scary for most people to definitely to consider working on something like that. So I knew that there was like a task in... Yeah, Mm. pitching it in a way that you would be excited and that you would be able to like see how it could be different. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think your point about it being scary was probably then my next wave of thought was I'm curious. I didn't know much about OnlyFans. I didn't know much about content monetization in general. I think the way you positioned it is you created this door that allowed me to expand my own thinking, which was coming at it more from a women's perspective and what this could do for women. And that I already was passionate about. The sexual, sensual side of things was something I'd never explored in terms of my own career and even my own belief system on that kind of thing. And so I think that was the next step for me was it was probably a bit more in the OnlyFans competitor Or OnlyFans was the only thing we were really comparing it to at that time, which probably heightened my fears. And the first, probably not the first wave of people I spoke to, I probably went more to my like mentors and people I really admired from a business perspective first to just float this idea with them. And it was really frowned upon by that early group. It was really... I'd been speaking with someone at the time about actually joining a board and they had said, if you go down this path, you will never be on a board, like your reputation will be ruined. And that's where a lot of the, I guess, cautiousness was stemming from, from people that I was chatting to at the time. It was like, you've done a lot for your career or you've got yourself to this certain point where you ruin your reputation if you start to focus on something like this. But that early judgment actually made me hungry are improving. This was more than that. And I think it probably fueled more of a fire in me to like exactly where you were already at at that point is how do you make this palatable and how can I 
go back to my dad and how can he be proud of me focusing on on building something in this space like what is actually the problem we're trying to address here who is the consumer and that's when I started speaking to creators that I knew starting to see if like they were interested in this space and if they had considered using OnlyFans and it was when people like Chantelle Otten and Flex Mommy started saying yeah I've thought about using OnlyFans I've thought about putting a price on my content again it was in my mind feeling like mm, this could be pretty big if creators like this have considered it and if they're looking for a space to make money this is starting like the fire inside me is building more and more and it's starting to feel like it has a real purpose and something that I could be passionate about being a part of but I took a pretty long time to say I would do this did you feel that like that uh, or a long time to my standards. <laughs> I actually saw it as a very positive signal that you were that considered, mm-hmm. right? Like if you'd just been like, fuck yeah, I'm, I'm jumping into this, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> too keen, <laughs> too keen, right? I know that's, yeah, maybe a weird mindset to have, but I, I do think it was really good that you thought this out a lot and that you did your own research. And I think I remember that initial conversation because like one of the things that I suppose, got me, because I shared like some of the same reservations about this. I'm like, oh my God, will this be a career ruiner? Will this like, I was like doing a lot of like thinking through my Twitter at the time. And I remember going viral on the like the wrong side of Twitter at that time. I remember this. And like people referring to me as a pimp and like all of these like really derogatory terms. And I was like, oh my God, is this like, is this what my future has in store if I go and like build something like this? And I think the thinking that I had to do to like turn myself around, I guess, was like really digging into the stigma and like figuring out like why specifically women face this stigma when they monetize their beauty and their body and their sexuality. And I I came to realize that it is like a sort of symptom of, of living in the patriarchy and a way of controlling women and making sure that we don't like run away and like make all this money off our sexuality because we have like great abundance of it. Yeah. And it's like a really subtle form of like keeping this like natural form of capital that women have at bay. And I think that like that realization was just like such an aha moment and like, oh my fucking God. Yeah. That sucks. And like, why shouldn't women be able to like freely do this without judgment? Yeah. And like, nobody's talking about this, not even OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you definitely brought me or I I was piggybacking on your realization. Like you suggested I read the book Erotic Capital and I started reading it and it was helping me to unlock a new way of thinking as well and also addressing some internalized misogyny that I held. Like I had definitely judged even influencers in the past for maybe being more sensual and using their bodies. And I think I may have at times looked at that as being potentially easy or, yeah, not that hard. And I had to go through this whole unlearning of that and realize that that was not necessarily an original thought, but more just a result of the society that we've grown up in. And I think even people on OnlyFans, but also just influencers in general, it became this like dirty word and something that was almost used as a bit of a derogatory term to kind of downplay the success of a lot of women that exist online and how they gained followers and how they built an audience and why they seem relatable and things like that. So it was definitely a, a journey for me, but the, the fact that I was caring so much about it and wanting to do the work internally and externally was just proving to me that I really cared. Yeah, it was really awesome to see. And do you remember reading that case study on Playboy, how like Playboy was able to destigmatize the sex category in the, I guess, the 90s and the 2000s? And I remember like a specific part of that case study was like the way that they achieved this was they involved higher status people in the Playboy brand. And so people's perception of like sex and starting to relate it to fun and parties and celebrities, Mm. it really changed. And not that we are super high status people, but I remember like trying to relate that to the status we'd achieved in our careers and thinking, 
we could, if we go and work on something like this, by virtue of the fact that we are established people in Silicon Valley in tech, like show that it's okay. And that Mm. like working on these sorts of problems is okay. Mm, Yeah. And I also, you've just reminded me of the case study on marijuana as well. And just how you can start to normalize something that's been looked at as quite taboo or bad or illegal. But I just, yeah, that period was even to your point saying that you got slammed online about being a pimp. (laughs) I can remember my dad literally screaming at me on one call, like, you're going to be an online pimp. And I'm like, no, it's not, that's not it. It's more, it's more than this. Okay. I feel like That period was just a lot of research and a lot of validating this idea. I think you'd 100% identified this opportunity in the market and then it became about who's going to use it and are there people that want this? And so we went through this period of just interviewing loads and loads of creators and I think that's when we started to learn more about the stigmas And the challenges on social media as well. We kind of uncovered all these challenges in the monetization space and in the only fan space. But then we were starting to hear a lot about inconsistent censorship, trolling, judgment. And again, it was just making this idea seem bigger and bigger and like there were probably more and more problems this product could try and solve. I feel like now we kind of get to fundraising or it was like, we're all in. We decided the three of us were all in. And a lot of these things were happening simultaneously. Like we were talking to investors, we were talking to potential users, trying to like validate things. We were like mocking up designs to put in our pitch deck. We need to show some of those early mock-ups. Oh my God. (laughs) Also, I've just had a flashback to the very first brand deck and I think we called it, well, you'd called it, was it Brilla? Oh, it yeah. was Brilla and it was like purple. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what were some of the other names? There was one related to birds, wasn't there? Uh, was it Birdhouse? Or something bird like that. Birdhouse or Birdbath or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We had all these different names in different colours. Oh, okay, we can cut this out if you don't want me to tell this story. <laughs> but I can remember, you, I don't know if you're going to be okay with this story or not, so just know it can be cut out. <laughs> I remember I think I'd then moved from Melbourne back to Sydney like resigned from my job, we're going all in, moved back to Sydney. And you sent an email to Ellie and I being like, you're in Mexico. You're like, so I was uh, tripping on LSD and I was doing some painting and this colour just came to me. And you sent a photo of a paintbrush in like a little, you know, what's the word I'm looking for in the water. And so the water had turned, honestly, kind of like the orange colour that we use. And I remember thinking, fuck yeah, like she's not afraid to share that she's just lost her mind a little bit and come up with this colour. Like I think this could be a good match. <laughs> oh, my God. I just distinctly remember that colour. Like yeah. so, yeah, we'll so find that photo It was, it was well, a great colour. If you're okay with this being aired. <laughs> but, yeah, we were coming up with names we were coming up, I guess, with what the brand identity would look like. I remember in all your early mock-ups, it was like Ariana Grande was was the, was the profile. Oh, yeah, that's right. She still is in, in some mock-ups. And then you, I remember you saying, I feel like it had always been that this business had to happen in America. You were had lived in New York for how many years? I'd been there for six years. Six years. Yeah. And I remember you specifically saying to me on it, probably the first call we ever had, or maybe it was a follow-up call, but I remember you saying the words, do you have anything tying you to Australia? And I was like, nope, fuck no. My boyfriend's just left for years, nothing keeping me here. And it was like, we're going to do this. It has to, it has to be done in LA. LA is the spot. Mm. And so I think you were working on renewing your visa. Ellie was working on moving from Wisconsin to LA And I started working on my visa and everything just from that point, I feel like everything started to work, move really, really quickly. Yeah. And then it didn't, but we'll go into the pace. (laughs) We'll go into the really fast period first. So you had said 
I don't think I ever would have known where to start in terms of you're going to incorporate like a venture-backed startup. Mm. I don't even know if that thought would have crossed my mind because I just don't know if I would have known how to take the first step. So it was really you driving like, this is how this company is going to be structured. This is how we're going to get the funds. This is how we're going to get ourselves off the ground. So maybe talk through those first steps you were taking there. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of help from just being a member of On Deck. And thinking back to that time, like a lot of the momentum came from being in that community. They, I suppose, saw me as someone that they like really wanted to support. And they had just started like a a fundraising team basically that connects you with investors in Silicon Valley and helps you raise your first round. And they, I suppose, like caught wind of the fact that we were starting to like ideate around this concept, this future sunroom. And took me under their wing and they were like, all right, let's start raising your pre-seed. And I was like, all right, yeah, I'm down. And they started introducing me to people. Um, Separate to that, an investor that I already knew introduced me to another investor who separately was like looking to fund a company, like an OnlyFans competitor, desperately looking to fund an OnlyFans competitor. They kind of wanted to like incubate it. And so like, I also started getting to know this fund a specific investor in particular. And so, and I was having conversations with angel investors and I distinctly remember the first yes, Matt and Erica Mm. Papikos, I can't pronounce their their last name correctly. That was wild. Like somebody committing a hundred thousand dollars. I was like, all right, we're, we're on. Yeah. But yeah, and it was a crazy time in late 2020. The market for fundraising was insane. It like I think we were very fortunate to raise our first round that year. Yeah. And there was like huge amount of hype around the creator economy. OnlyFans had blown up. We were all in lockdown. So people and lots of people had lost their jobs. So lots of people were returning to products like OnlyFans or Patreon to make money. And so investors were literally just like desperate to pour funds into companies like Sunroom. Mm. And so I think we were, yeah, we were pretty fortunate and we ended up raising 2.3 million. I think that first round, there were definitely hiccups along the way. For example, one of those first investors that I met who committed a million dollars to us ended up pulling the million dollars out, like when we were, I guess, a couple of weeks into the round. And that like at the time was devastating. I remember like crying and like calling my friend, my friend who had a company and I was like, how can they do this? Like they'd committed this money that had like put it in writing. And yeah, I think that was just like our first exposure to investors and, and the Mm. concept that like, you don't have the money until it's in your bank account Mm. Um, and that people can change their mind and that people are flaky And it was definitely a bit of a hit to the ego. It had all this amazing momentum and like a bunch of other people had committed money. Um, But we'd also gone out and told like people, oh, we have this million dollars. Yeah. And it ended up not mattering. We Mm. like raised more than we intended to raise at better terms than that investor that pulled out Mm. uh, was setting. And so it didn't matter. It probably like fueled us more than anything. And I still like admittedly have a bit of a chip on my shoulder, a bit of like a We'll show you. Oh, we'll show you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I don't know how you felt when when that happened. I can remember that investor because I can remember we were working on some docs and you're like, I'm going to share this with so-and-so. And I remember them putting all their comments in and that was like probably my first even just interactions with someone in the BC world giving their opinions on your opinions. So I was finding that fascinating And then I can remember probably like the first few hundred thousand coming in and I had headed back to Sydney at that point. And I don't know if the thought crossed my mind, like I'm going to go out and get us some money as well. I think it kind of just fell into my lap a little bit. Like I ended up at this lunch (laughs) talking to this table of women about what we were building and I didn't realize who was sitting across the table from me, but it was a very successful businesswoman and her ears pricked up. And she said, are you investing, seeking investment? I was like, yeah, you know, we've just started doing this. We're starting to get some cash in. She's like, come to my house next week for lunch. So I went to her house and that was probably my first time sitting down, really pitching this to someone. And I can remember calling you saying, yeah, they want to give us, I think it was 1.2 million. And you were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, like, I think I, I think I might've just got us 1.2 million. And you were kind of like, that's, 
crazy. And so we started chatting to them a bit more and it didn't end up happening with them because I don't think they ended up really being the right type of investor for what we were doing. The kinds of questions they were asking weren't really... They wanted to be quite involved Yeah, memory. Yeah. So we didn't end up doing that, but it definitely gave me the confidence to know I, I maybe I could sell this and I should start speaking to more and more people. So I just started hitting up people in my network and actually social media really helped because I started sharing that we were raising on my Instagram and that led to VCs reaching out to me and then I could help you and bring in some money for us. But I remember feeling like that was really easy. Mm. That felt like a really easy period. And I I should actually pull this text up. I really hope I can find this text because it just shows how we had no fucking idea what was about we, to hit us. We were pretty cocky in the beginning. Oh we my God. were. We were. We had no idea what was about to hit us. I have to find this message. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if we could summarize, like in the beginning, it was like very easy for us to raise money and get going, but it was like challenging for us to hire. And I feel like in the latter half of our business, it's been like more challenging to raise money, but like much easier to hire, much easier to like market and grow and like succeed at sort of the other things in the business. A hundred percent. I need to, I can't find this, but I remember I sent a text to Whitney. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Idiot. So I sent her this message. I go, Hello. When you started Bumble, did you ever feel like it was almost going too well? I just feel like it's going so well at the moment and it's almost scary. (laughs) And we had had this conversation. We'd had this conversation like, it can't be this easy. What month is this? This was April. Oh, yeah. Right before shit hit the Things were about to get real. April 2021. (laughs) Yeah. She goes, hi, love. Ha ha. No, I never felt anything was going well. (laughs) Lol. I'm so glad you feel that way though. Is it all good? And it just, I think the next week or two weeks or next month, it was just like, can we even build what we've come up with? Yeah. We had all these ideas. We'd done all this refining. At that point, we, we knew a bit more about who our user would be, what the product differentiators would be. And our anti-screenshot technology was proving a real shit show. Yeah, I think that was just, that was the moment where I think we realized that without a product and without good software and without like really amazing engineers, you have nothing when you're building a tech company. Um, yeah. And I think if we just like rewind a little bit to let everyone know like how we had arrived at this point, we, we had started Sunroom four months before that officially, or five months before that, with a third co-founder who was the CTO. And she was building Sunroom. She was going to build the MVP, which stands for Minimally Viable Product. And it's like the very basic version that you build of any software product before you go to launch it. And we like had the designs and like there were like so many good, we even had like users that we could put on the product, but it was just taking us a very long time to get something in our hands that we could use. It was sort of hard to know like what the what the standard was, what the benchmark was, because we'd never done this before, mm. like built something from scratch. But I think we really started to pick up from our investors and other people around us that like this, like this was slow. And I think we could feel it ourselves mm. that like things were not moving. And like this should have been the most electric, most urgent, most fast part of building our company. And I think for like a couple of reasons, it ultimately didn't work out with Ellie and we had to part ways amicably like we're still friends and in contact today but we were like left in a in a tough spot Mm. and we had to figure out like who was going to build sunroom Mm. uh and we had to figure it out quickly because we were burning cash this entire time um and like our runway was like Mm. reducing I also think it's important to note I think so many people shy away from even telling this story about it potentially not working out with a co-founder but this is just so incredibly common and even from the start I remember investors had said to you three doesn't work Mm. (laughs) (laughs) and I don't know if it was I don't think it was really like a not like a clash or anything just 
just like maybe some fundamental differences that we were yeah. okay to acknowledge and just walk away from. And I think it's always best that that's done sooner than later. And like you definitely just made sure that we tested things, made decisions and then kind of moved on. But it was it was definitely a blow because we'd also started speaking to creators and PR teams and were thinking that our product would be launching soon and then it wasn't. So the whole time these delays were happening, it was also leading to us losing trust mm. with our early believers, which really, really hurt and actually still hurts, Yeah, to, to be honest. Like there are people that didn't stick it out and like didn't maintain belief. Yeah. And that's kind of on us. Yeah. Which can be a can be a hard pill to swallow because like some of those people I would consider friends as well. Mm. So it sucks when that happens, but I think the biggest lesson is do not <laughs> share a launch date. Oh my god. <laughs> I I distinctly remember our investor updates around that period. We'd be like, okay, we're launching by the end of March. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like it's definitely happening. Oh my God. And the, you know, the, the, the March investor update we would go out, still haven't launched, looking like it'll be towards the end of April. And th- I mean, this just went on and on. And we had no concept of like how close or how far we were from having this MVP ready. Mm. We were so green. <laughs> yeah. And we'd lost the founder with the technical, yeah. the hardcore technical experience. So all we really had to go off was what our now remaining team members were. I mean, we had some incredible team members and some that really have stepped up to the plate and kind of took the bull by the horns, which was incredible. But I just remember all of 2021 honestly feeling so unsettling. Yeah. And on a personal level, and I'm I'm sure you have similar feelings, like maybe slightly different for me because, like, I just felt like I couldn't even really contribute. I felt, like, Mm. useless. Like, I don't have a product to market. Yeah. I can't get – there's no product for me to get people on. Yeah. There's no event for me to plan. There's no press for me to get. Like, what the fuck – what value can I add? It just – It was really hard for me to not kind of be all guns blazing, but I just couldn't be at that moment. And I also was struggling to feel, I'd felt so proud. Mm. We didn't talk about the trough of sorrow. Like we were (laughs) in the fucking trough of sorrow, the depths of this thing. And it can come back as well. Basically, this is this chart that we found, this like very well-known chart in the tech industry. And it charts the, the mood that founders will feel like throughout their journey building a company. And there's like the TechCrunch peak of initiation when you get, you know, we, we got funded, you got your TechCrunch article. Um, <laughs> and then it's like a, a steep, steep decline into like a long and low trough. And we were in that trough for all of 2021, like honestly, probably 2022 as well. The trough has you yeah. never know how long the trough will go. Yeah. Um, but like I think back to 2021 and that was probably the hardest year of my life. If there was ever a moment I wish I knew how to code, it like would have been then. <laughs> oh my God. And I think like just to set a little more context, because there was so much money in the tech industry and in the VC markets at the time and so many companies and uh, startups were getting funded, it was extremely, there was a drain on talent, especially like software engineering talent. And so it was extremely difficult to hire. And we were having to pay like through the roof just Mm -hmm. to get people in to help us build Sunroom. And because we didn't have like a technical leader at that point in time, it was like much harder to recruit really talented engineers. We also hadn't done that before. (laughs) And we didn't have any proof. That what we were building was even going to work. Right. So these people had to take a risk, a gamble, and a lot of people aren't willing to take that. Totally. And I I think it's probably worth mentioning here, like, the solution that we ended up finding or what ended up happening. I had briefly contracted at another startup before starting Sunroom and met a very young engineer. Admittedly, I didn't realize how young he was at the time. (laughs) He was 17 at the time. He like dropped out of high school early to like- We need to get him on. Yeah. We need to get him on. (laughs) He dropped out of high school early to go and work at a a tech company. He started college at age 14. Yeah. He like started to code when he was 12 and like just taught himself. He's an extremely talented engineer. I don't think I yet knew that. And I don't even think he fully knew just how talented he, he was at the time. And he started contracting for us 
throughout like 2021. And I remember he came down to LA or he might've even moved to LA at this point in time, but we still hadn't, we were still searching for a head of engineering. We were like, we need someone very experienced. Like we need to like find that baller. And like, that was what all energy was focused on. And I had a one-on-one with him. He's still a contractor at this time. We like walked along the beach near my house and he sort of like, he's a like pretty introverted guy, less so now, but at the time (laughs) he was like very softly spoken and he was like, I can do this. I can do this. And I was like, he was 19 at this point. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the thing is like, he was proving to us that he could do it. Like he was building something. He was making like really like fundamental architectural decisions. And so we just gave him the shot. We were like, all right, you join us full time. Mm -hmm. We will, you know, pay you X amount more than you were getting at your last job. And we're going to get you some technical advisors mm-hmm. and like, let's do this. And uh, yeah, he's still with us today. He's our lead engineer and he's like built the vast majority of Sunroom and architected it all from the ground and he's incredible. Yeah. And we're so lucky to have him. Yeah. But it's a very like, it's an unconventional, mm. yeah, it's an unconventional way to do it. I do think the technical advisors helped us probably during that time and Probably, I don't know if our investors needed this or not, but probably gave our investors a bit of a sense Mm. of we've got support. Mm -hmm. But I do remember, I don't think we ever felt scared at all to say, you know, we were parting ways with Ellie, but I remember that that was never like looked down upon or anything. Everyone was like, yeah, this, this happens. Glad you, you know moved on quickly onwards and upwards type vibes. If anything, I think it made us look good as leaders that we made a fast decision. Like we didn't let this go on for a very long time. And yeah, we were able to part ways without there being any drama. Yeah. It it was weird receiving those sort of, not congratulations, but like this happens, you're handling it well, like onto the next. Yeah. That was probably our first major hurdle, would you say? What's been our next biggest hurdle? I mean, I definitely remember late 2021, like we had a product and we were using it as beta testers at that time. But like we had, we decided that we needed to build this screenshot blocking technology. I think like we either made the mistake or like we actually needed to do this when we were pitching people and you were talking Mm. to creators, you would talk about this screenshot blocking technology. I don't think we'd yet named it Sunblock. No. We were like, Um, yeah, this is happening. And it's going (laughs) to make Sunroom feel really safe and secure. It's going to make you feel really comfortable to like share anything that you want on the internet. And like, isn't this amazing? And like, we've got it. But little did we know that like (laughs) this screenshot blocking technology was a whole can of worms. And I mean, rightfully so. There was like no precedent for using this technology and applying it in the way that we were trying to do, which was essentially on like a social media-esque platform. It had only ever been used on products like Netflix and Hulu where, you know, you have watch one long video at a time, but Mm. this is like you're scrolling quickly through content. And so we just started to realize that it was not going to be straightforward. And there was a lot of research and development that we had to do and experimentation and like going back to the drawing board over and over and over again to try different approaches to get it to work. And it was working, but it just wasn't fast. Mm. And I think the thing is like people that are coming from TikTok and Instagram expect speed. They expect their content to be delivered really quickly. And like, we're still figuring this out today. We've got it to work really well on iPhones, on web, not so much. Like the infrastructure just like, isn't quite the same. So it's part of the reason why we're scrambling to build Android right now, because it'll work really well on Android. Mm. But I think that was where we had to spend months and we, we knew we couldn't launch. We knew we couldn't publicly launch because it was below our quality standards. We were starting, you were starting to onboard creators and they were just like, it's not yeah. there. Yeah. It's been such a blessing and a curse. Mm. Like it's this, it's our aha, wow moment. You know, it's the thing that when you're pitching a creator, they stop in their tracks and just gasp, to be honest. And a lot of people were just saying, how has this not been done before? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, now we know. Yeah. <laughs> and we had to make some hard decisions. Like we definitely had moments where we had conversations around, are we going to keep doing this? Yeah. And I think it shows how much we truly care about like servicing these creators mm-hmm. and protecting them in this way. And we know that with this technology, people do open up more. 
and they're more vulnerable and they share a different side of themselves that they don't feel safe to share on social media. But it also has made our product way slower than it would be without it. And it's a behavioral thing, to your point. Everyone's so used to this immediacy with Instagram and TikTok. And on Sunroom, they're kind of having to wait for a little bit whilst this Mm. sunblock, did I say on sunblock or on sunroom? (laughs) Whilst this sunblock technology is being applied. No, I remember asking Chantel because we were like, I think we'd had a couple of advisors be like, do you really need to do this? Like this doesn't seem like an MVP feature. Yeah. And I remember slacking Chantel, who was an advisor for us at the time, and she was like, you absolutely need it. Yeah. We were like, okay, yeah, back to work. Yeah. (laughs) There was just no way. And I can remember you'd actually had a conversation with one of the guys from Dropbox who had said something about how fucking hard it was for them to build this folder, you know, that did what it did, but how hard that was just made their business so much more defensible at that time. Yeah. Um, It creates a natural moat, like technological complexity. And so that's what I always think of now when I know we're still iterating on Sunblock. Yeah. I'm like, it is extremely hard to copy and we have patents now against the technology and I'm like glad we put the effort in. Yeah. But I think that this probably takes us up to when we publicly launched. Yeah. February 2nd, 2022. Yeah. Because that's when the next like shit hit the fan. <laughs> <laughs> and that just shows like it was a long time. Like we got together end of 2020. We're doing research. We're validating. We're getting pitch decks together. We're raising money end of 2020, early 2021, we start building this thing 2021 and we don't launch for a whole year, basically, until February 2022. The 2nd of February 2022, angel numbers. (laughs) But I think we've been talking for a while, so we might have to do part fucking three (laughs) of of this. But I wanted to ask you one or a couple of questions to close this out. If you could change one thing that occurred in those early days, what would you change or do differently? Okay. So like from a design perspective, I would like way, way, way simplify the design of the product. Originally we were building on web and on iOS from the very start. I would have just probably just picked a web maybe because it would have been faster to do. And I think I would have just devoted all of my time that wasn't spent on design to finding engineers who like weren't really prolific and established engineers, people who were younger, hungrier, maybe from other countries Mm. and who were Mm. talented and like wanted to get stuck in and and build things, but weren't going to cost us a lot of money and were going to work hard. I, I think we were just like looking for the wrong people. Yeah. Engineering wise for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What would you change from that time? I feel like I jumped the gun on like a few things. If I had, if I could have my time again, I wouldn't assume that all the development is going to happen according to the deadlines and goals set forward. I would probably trust myself that I could just execute something pretty quickly, almost last minute. Like I probably would have kept people warm a little bit longer and maybe not had just all the conversations I was having with creators. Like I ended up with, you know, a hundred creators sitting there waiting to be our founding creators. I ended up with a PR agency that cost us a shitload trying to like renegotiate contracts and just push things Mm. back and back. And I think that just having all of those early users see how, gain exposure to how long everything was taking us, just put us in a bit of a riskier like brand position and yeah, it did lose trust a little bit. So I think I probably needed to get comfortable with like doing different things and maybe sitting still a bit more, which is a very weird thing to say. I think being like a a co-founder of this early stage startup, but I probably needed to be more comfortable with the fact that it wasn't my time to have the baton yet Mm. and just trust that like once I got the baton, I could have carried it and carried it quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we are going to finish with a quick rapid fire. Lucy, greatest win in the first year? It'd have to be bringing on Nick, our lead engineer. Yeah. What about you? I think it's a collective, all the creators saying yes. Like even though I probably should have waited, 
every day just having those calls where it was validating the idea and I could report back to the whole team like, oh my God, we got this person. That was really motivating through a really tough time. It was really exciting. Yeah. Okay. What do you think the greatest traits of success are for an early stage startup? Uh, Speed of execution. That's literally it. How quickly you can make changes to your product, add new features, ship improvements, Mm. get things out to your users. I think it's people actually wanting what you're building. I just think I hear from people where I'm thinking in the back of my head, have you actually asked members of the mass public if they want this? Mm. So check that out before you start. (laughs) (laughs) For anyone starting a business, big or small, what's one thing they should remember in the first year? Uh, just be in constant communication with your users, like always talking to them, always showing them the product, getting feedback on the product and like just being so in tune to how they're feeling, not only about your product, but like understanding their problems at large as it relates to the market that you're in. Yep. What about you? I would say trust your instincts, like those little niggling feelings you have deep down are so valid and it's really hard to have confidence in those feelings when you're doing something like this for the first time, but trust them and also just expect nothing to go to plan and you won't be disappointed. Mm. (laughs) Oh, the intuition is so real. I still struggle with it today. I'm like, I know I have an intuitive feeling and I'm not acting on it. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Um, Okay. So we're working on a new segment, which is try or cry which is where we are going to answer questions from our community. So I have got a good one that came in last night. Let me just find this. And for context, try is like, okay, you should keep pushing. There's work to be done here. And cry is like, that fucking sucks. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it would be really awesome if you guys ever have any issues that you're facing, like please send us voice notes, hit us up on Instagram and we will try and talk through them. Yes. And I'll try or cry segment in the show. Yes. Okay. So this is our first try or cry. I just started a new job and already know it's not culturally the right fit for me. I've had other offers from other companies, but I feel guilty for leaving so soon. Should I feel this way or is it fine? Hmm. I would probably want to know the history, like that person's history. Have they job hopped a lot? Like, is this a pattern or is this like truly they've made one poor decision and ended up at this company? And if that's the case, like, I personally think you have no no time to lose. You yeah. should, like, go pursue those other offers. I agree. I think there's actually been research done on this that, like, an employee will know within their first two weeks if it's right or not. And so many people just ignore those feelings and they stick it out because they think they should. Mm. I definitely have an issue with the notion that, like, you should stick it out for X period of time just because. But I do agree, like, if you're doing that over and over again, that is a little bit of a a red flag. But I also think there's so much courage in knowing that it's not right and having your own back and and stepping away from it because you need to enjoy where you're showing up for eight hours a day, every day. You're not going to be doing your best work if you're not happy and you don't want your work to be taking a personal toll on you. So I, I'd i be definitely inclined to, to leave and not worry about the time. It's like you wouldn't stay in a relationship with a guy that you didn't have a match with or anyone. So like why would you stay in a workplace that wasn't a match as well? Totally. It, it makes me think there's got to be better ways of like quickly figuring out the culture of a place. Trials. Like, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> trials or like just going out for like extended dinners yeah. with the team or like social hangs if, if you can yeah. manage it. Yeah. Okay. To wrap things up, we will move into our spicy question segment. So Lucy, my spicy question for you, bit of an emotional one. What has been the biggest lesson you learned from heartbreak? Oh man. Uh, I don't feel like I've truly been heartbroken. <laughs> You're lucky. <laughs> More of a heartbreaker. <laughs> uh, I, I there is there is definitely one instance in my life where 
like I wasn't in a relationship, like a full relationship with this person, but I was like very involved with them and like couldn't be with them. And I, that was really difficult. I think my, my lesson from that period would be, uh, like, I wish I was in therapy. This is like pre-therapy Lucy. (laughs) Um, but it would be to just like get clear about the situation and leave sooner. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I lingered, lingered and hoped and had this false optimism for too long. And when I look back at that time, I'm like, oh, my God, I wasted so much time Mm. in that state. Yeah, just waiting for more that was never going to be. Yeah. Yeah. That is tough though. Yeah. Okay, I love that. (laughs) Okay, Michelle, what is the most embarrassing thing you've ever done to impress someone? I'm just naturally so impressive. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't. I have such a tough exterior when it comes to attracting men, to be honest. So I would never normally do anything outwardly to try and attract their attention. I am much more of like a, I have zero interest in you. Get the fuck away from me. And that is more my game. Because I know that that just makes them, like, want you more. Yeah. So, may, like, maybe that's it. Like, just giving zero, pretending I give zero fucks when I actually give many, many fucks. I don't know if I, I'm not, like, embarrassed about that, but I've never, this is so bad, I've just never outwardly tried that much to, like, get their attention. I've gone with the more. Has that ever come, has, has anyone ever brought that up? Or has it oh, ever come yeah. back to, to bite you? The harder shell. Yeah. It's always worked. Yeah. In my favor, to be honest. But I did date a guy for a while who described me as a lizard, cold blooded. Oh my God. Yeah. And that I just had no emotion. And I, I didn't really, in any of the relationships or any of my dating experiences, I've, I've been like much tougher externally facing. It wasn't really until Bill where I started to be more emotional and I think that's because ultimately I probably never felt that comfortable with those people so I didn't feel like I could truly open up. But my game has always been much more of a like, get the fuck away from me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. A quick ask if you enjoyed listening, it would mean the world if you could jump on Spotify or Apple and review the podcast five stars only, please. We need to build that army so we can read what you loved and what you want to hear more of. We're so grateful to have such an incredible community of empowered, motivated, and confident women supporting each other here to go after their dreams. That's what we've needed most throughout our journey. You can subscribe so you don't miss our episodes or head over to our Try Babies podcast Facebook group and Try Babies Insta, where we can connect with you more and ask us questions that you want answered in the show. See you on the next episode of Try Babies.